0: Let's turn this morning to, uh, to scripture. It's a baby dedication Sunday. It falls in the middle of this True North-themed series of messages from the lives of the patriarchs. So, we're going to stay with the patriarchs because, um, at, least, at least to start, uh, we're going to get into some New Testament scriptures in a few moments. But I at least want to read a text from Genesis um, that will... Uh, that will Provide us a a foundation for this baby dedication uh, service. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18, Genesis chapter 18. Can I see what? Are you able to change? Thank you. Because I don't know when it changes up there. Thank you. So, Genesis 18, I'd like to read verses 16 through 19. Genesis 18, verses 16 through 19. It says then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off and the Lord said shall i hide from abraham what i am about to do since abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed for i have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Um, so, I think, uh, I think we're probably all familiar with the context of this chapter. Let me just, uh, let me just um, run through the highlights very quickly. Um, uh, Abraham, uh, Sarah... Their whole crew are minding their own business, and the Lord appears to them in the form of three three figures. Uh, Three would appear to them to be men. And they come into their camp, and there is this conversation, this interaction between them, where Abraham offers to show them hospitality, stay, let us feed you, let us take care of you. and the <clears throat> conversation between them turns to um, <clears throat> to the the one main figure of the three saying to Abraham that he will he will have a son, that he will have a son and and that that son would come through Sarah and of course you remember the whole interaction where Sarah then hears that and she laughs and the angel says why did you, why did you laugh and she says i didn't laugh and um yes you did laugh i i i do know you laughed right and um and that interaction in which in which abraham and sarah are promised a child and and after her laughter the angel says to her, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And that, that promise is made, is made uh, certain. Now, these three figures are then going to move to Sodom and Gomorrah and have a look-see uh, at, this, uh, at, at the wickedness in these towns, and uh, uh, with the intention of uh, this wickedness coming under the judgment of God and these towns being destroyed, and, and uh, the, the angel says, uh, speaking to himself, so to speak, says, should I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do? I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and based upon the report, based upon the evil that I see there, I'm going to destroy this place. Should I hide this from Abraham? And so he initiates a conversation with Abraham as they separate themselves from the others. He initiates a conversation with Abraham based upon this idea that Abraham is going to be a great nation and that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him and that Abraham is going to be a faithful father that is going to raise his children to follow the Lord. And the angel says, for these reasons, I'm going to share with him what it is I'm about to do. I'm going to share with him what it is I'm about to do. Now, let me just say a few things about this interaction to to start this morning. The first one is, in verse 1, we're talking about a theophany. And I put Christophany in in question marks. Um, The phrase, the angel of the Lord, does not appear here. But... Uh, what we have is three beings appearing to Abraham. And verse 18 just says it outright. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. The Lord appeared to him. right? And so, and so we're, we're left to understand that one of these beings is the Lord in the flesh. That he's the Lord in the flesh. So we're talking about a theophany, God appearing in the flesh. Now, in this case, we can't say this certainly, um, but the, the, the term Christophany refers to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ on earth. That is, that, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes physical form and temporarily appears on this earth to have an interaction with a human being. God on this earth, before he, before he is incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ, as we read about in the New Testament. So this may very well have been a Christophany. Regardless of what you want to do with that, what we have here is God appearing to Abraham and speaking to Abraham. Now, let me just say this very quickly. Um, if you, if, you, um, if you read, the, if we had read the, the, the context preceding the, the passage we, we just read, for example, if you look back at verse 2, um, it says that the, verse 1 says that the Lord appeared to him by the yokes of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And verse 2, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Three men. Three men. Now, it's de- they are described as men from the perspective of the one who sees them. right? To Abraham, these look like three men. He runs down and he bows before them. He bows himself before them. Later on, it becomes clear that these are angels in physical form. Angels appearing as men. Two of the three go off to Sodom and Gomorrah. And chapter 19 identifies them as two angels, specifically. Let me just say this. Um, well, first of all, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, right? Uh, we, don't know, we don't know hardly anything about the conditions under which angels are allowed to appear in physical form on earth. We don't know almost anything about that. We don't know the rules that govern this. Like I don't know how often it could happen. I don't even remember where we were, but my wife and I were somewhere the other day and somebody made a comment to us. And as this person moved away, my wife looked at me and said, could that have been an angel? And I said, I have no idea. What made you think of that? Like why? Because it wasn't like they did something like, you know, great or spiritual or, I don't know. Why do you ask me that question? I, I, I—that never occurred to me in this in this uh, in this setting. Um, so we don't know. We don't know. We have no idea what the rules are that govern that govern uh, uh, angels taking human form. Now let me just pause and say something a little bit more radical here. We don't know the rules that govern angels taking human form whether they are holy angels or fallen angels we don't know okay however one of the things that's a curiosity that we see in this text is that when they take human form they have human abilities so when Abraham serves them food they can actually eat right? They can actually eat. Now, in this case, it's not a big deal, but in some other scriptures that becomes a really big deal, because there are some strange things that scripture has to say about angels and the things they can do when they take physical form, okay? But it seems in a passage like this, it seems that, that one of the things we're given to understand is that when they take human form, the rules of which we don't know, but when they take human form, they have the ability, all the physical abilities of the human bodies that they appear in the form of. Okay, So that's secondly. When angels take human form, they have, they have those abilities. We don't know the rules that govern that. Thirdly, thirdly very importantly here, um, in, in verse... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I just turned the page that I shouldn't have turned. In verse 19, when, when, when the angel says, For I have chosen him. The Lord speaks and says, For I have chosen him. Some of your translations may read, For I have known him. For I have known him. Or I know him. Okay? This, this word, in fact most often in the Old Testament is translated to know. It's translated as to know. In, in, in uh, the, the word that's used here, it means to know in the sense of to perceive or to understand, to acquire knowledge, to discern something. Okay, So it's a very experiential form of, of knowledge. The idea here is simply this, uh, and I'm not going to take time to develop this, but it's important for us to recognize that God's choosing and God's knowing are intimately connected. God's choosing and God's knowing are intimately connected. Sometimes we like to divorce these things from each other completely. And just God chooses because he wants to choose or because he just chooses to choose. The idea is that God's choosing and God's knowing are intimately connected together. In fact, I think that when you look at the weight of Scripture, you can step away from it saying something like this, God's choosing is based upon His knowing. He knows all things. He knows all things. We list the omniscience of God as one of His essential attributes. God's choosing flows out of the fact that he knows all things. That he knows all things. He chooses because he knows. Because he knows. Again, it's one of those things that we can observe in this text. Not directly important for us right now, but has very deep implications in in understanding some other scriptures, what it says about about God's choosing. God's choosing and God's knowing go hand in hand. Um, so, if I for baby dedication Sunday, if I'm just going to say say it this way, I would I would suggest that every parent today could have this faith that if God chose to put that child in your home, knowing you as a Christian parent, it's because He intends to save them. He has known them, He has chosen them, He wants to save them, He wants them to come out of your home saved. That is His desire. He knew you. He gave them to you. All right. Verse 17 is kind of a strange verse. The Lord, speaking to himself, at least this is the way it's presented to us in the text, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, let me just pause and how many of you agree that God doesn't owe a human being anything and certainly reports to no one. Right? Right? I mean, to think to yourself, like, like, well, you know, God, you're going to do a big thing in Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and you should really get some counsel, you should really talk to someone like Abraham about that before you do it, right? God doesn't owe that to anyone. God doesn't owe that to anyone. So it's a kind of a strange verse. God is not under any obligation to reveal his plans to Abraham. Abraham. He doesn't owe any human being anything. Okay? However, this next thing is very important for us to recognize. And that is, while he doesn't owe men anything, he delights to include men in his plans. He delights to include men in his plans. That God chooses to include human beings in his plans. In fact, I'm going to say it pretty radically. Almost everything God does on earth, he does through a human being. Almost everything. So, how many of you have heard increasing reports of Jesus appearing to people in dreams in the Middle East and Muslims getting saved? What's the ordinary way of spreading the gospel? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. In the scope of history... The number of people that have been saved through some visitation in their dream versus the number of people saved through the proclamation of the gospel, like it's, it's about a million to one. Okay, Because God's ordinary means is to operate through people. In fact, it's fascinating that so often, even things that only God can do, he delights to involve people in. So he cannot, he's the only one that can save, but he wants us to preach the gospel. Or he's the only one to heal, but he wants us to lay hands on people and pray the prayer of faith over them. He involves human beings in the work that he plans to do. So he doesn't owe it to Abraham. He chooses to involve Abraham. But I will say this, that the language is beautiful in one sense, that that while we know that God doesn't owe us any, anything, the way he says it and then what he says next leads us to this conclusion that God, is, that God is saying, what I see in Abraham is so important to me that this will be the kind of man that I choose to reveal my plans to. Because I see this in him, and I'm about to do this in his area, and, and his nephew is going to be impacted by this. I'll speak with Abraham about it. I should before I do it. Notice that in parentheses. I should before I do it. I should speak with Abraham before I do it. It's a remarkable thing for God to say. And he does it giving us specific qualifications that he sees in Abraham. Abraham. So, for our purposes this morning, the most important verses in this text are verses 18 and 19, and especially verse 19. Especially verse 19. Let me read them again. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is a messianic promise. Right? It's through Jesus that this this statement is fulfilled. For I have chosen him, or known him, for I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. All right, so this morning, I just want to look at two things with us from this text. I want to look at two things that we see in this text uh, that I think are, are useful for us on this baby dedication Sunday. Now, please hear this. None of what I'm going to say is earth-shattering or new. I mean, this is kind of like Parenting 101. This is just super basics. But can I, can I just tell you what has been a tendency in my life, anyways? There, there's, something about, there's something about us, at least there has been something about me, that like, the farther I go along, the more I learn The easier it is to get stuck in technicalities and forget the big-picture kinds of things, to think of like big-picture things as Christianity 101, for new believers. And, and I get, you know, I, I've learned, I've grown from there. And, and I, I'm just going to say it the way, the way it strikes me is we, we miss how pharisaical we become. How Jesus talks to the Pharisees and says, you know, you're so particular about the way you tithe mint and anise and cumin, but you forget the big picture of the law. Things like justice and judgment. <laughs> you forget the, the, the big picture stuff, right? You know, like, like the three really big things or, or, or like the big category things you've forgotten because you've gotten stuck in all these little details along the way. Could I just, could I just say this morning that it can be very helpful... To remind us as parents of what the big picture stuff is. Like major in the majors, not in the minors. Just keep a big picture thing about, uh, a big picture perspective about our interactions with our children. Abraham, this interaction with Abraham gives us some of these things. So look first at just two things this morning. The first is a vital connection. A vital connection. What's the connection? the connection is the connection between family relationships or human relationships and a man's spiritual life and ministry. That these two things are intimately connected. In other words, the Lord is speaking to Abraham and he's saying something, to, to, he's saying something like this. I should speak to Abraham. That is this spiritual connection between me and Abraham, I should speak with him because of the way he's going to conduct himself and his family. That these two things really matter. That these two things are really connected. A man's spiritual life, a man's relationship with God, and a man's ministry are intimately connected with his family life. These two things are intimately tied. Now, as soon as I say that, anyone that's been around church circles for a while could probably list a number of scriptures that come to mind to demonstrate this idea, right? And so again, I'm not saying anything to you that you're you're unlikely to know already. However, however... I wanna say it this way, to help us all have this picture clearly in mind. Here's something that I find happening often. You're talking with someone, they've been saved for a long time, their spiritual lives are whatever they are, and, and the fruit of what's going on in their relationships, doesn't fit their claim as a spiritual man or spiritual woman. And I just want to pause here because this is not a legalistic statement. Like, I've often sat back and thought to myself, I have seven children. How many of them would have to quote-unquote turn out for me to be enough of a man of God? It's a serious question, right? Like, does it have to be 100%? Four is at least above fifty percent. What do you how do you how do you measure this? Here's what I want to say to us. Here's what I want to say to us. Men, it would be a good thing for us to be humble enough to admit that we aren't spiritually all that if our marriages are falling apart. Ladies, it would be a good thing for you to be humble enough to admit that your spiritual life is not all that you would like to portray it as if your marriage is falling apart. So let me just say it this way. I'm, I'm sitting here now and the audience that I'm, 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 look, we're not talking about your past. I'm talking about your present right now the person that's sitting next to you, the person that you're married to, the person you're going to be married to, the person that you're in a a committed relationship with, please hear this. That relationship should reflect the quality of your spiritual life. In fact, that relationship will reflect the quality of your spiritual life. It will. Now, let me just say this. Some of us, some of us, because of who we are, our examples, our upbringing, our personality, our emotional well being, some of us might have a very deep love for God and a very strong commitment to the Lord, and we just are really bad at human relationships. Could I, could I get an amen? Could I say, could, could, would you agree that that's possible? We're just bad at human relationships. But can I tell you the one thing? that I think is is the dividing line. Like, If if you see someone whose relationships are falling apart, it doesn't automatically mean that they're not a man or woman of God. But I will tell you this, I will tell you this. It may be that somewhere along the line, there's just a defect and they are really bad at relationships, but I'll tell you what will be true of a real man or woman of God. They will not be comfortable with their broken relationships they will have a hunger to make them better. They may not know how. They might be stuck. They might be... St- they might- God, I don't know where to start with this woman you gave to me. I don't know where to start with this man you... I'm so confused. I'm so hurt. I'm so whatever. I don't know what to do. Things are not good right now. Please hear this. A spiritual man or woman is not always marked by the immediate quality of their relationships, but they will be marked specifically by a hunger to pursue the quality of that relationship, and they will be willing to sacrifice to make that relationship stronger. They will understand that these two are related to one another. That they are related to one another. And that you can't have a mess over here while at the same time thinking that everything is just fine between you and God. These two things impact each other. And they demonstrate the quality of each other. Okay? And so so this connection that we see, I'm going to run through these very quickly. You can spend time on them. We're talking about them in Sunday school. 1 Timothy 3... Uh, um, elders, deacons, Titus 1. These are examples of places in Scripture where we're told things like, well, if, if you're going to be in a spiritual ministry, then these things kind of need to be in place. You need to have, you need to have your family doing okay, and those things need to be related to one another. Why? Because, because your human relationships are intimately tied to your spiritual ministry. These things are related to one another. They're related to one another. Now, I've, I have, a, a lot of us have been under the guilt and the burden of a very legalistic approach to these scriptures that makes all of us not good enough for ministry. Can I ask if anyone else has ever felt unqualified? Right? So please hear this. Satan will take this and use it in a condemning sort of a way to try to destroy every single one of us and none of us will ever be qualified enough to be able to do anything for God, and that's a lie. The other side of the lie is this can be going to pot and everything's okay, I got a ministry. No, that's not true either. We need to get some things in order, right? And we have to focus on what the priority is. We have to focus on that priority. Ephesians 5 is another example where, by the way, the passage on husbands and wives starts with be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It starts with this instruction to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in that part of Ephesians in which in which Paul is writing about how we as Christians should walk in our lives, what our walk should look like. And he tells us, do not be drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking unto unto yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then he says, submitting yourselves one to another. You know why? Because submitting to each other takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Because none of us are thrilled about submitting to another person. None of us are excited about that. All of us need the Holy Spirit to enable us. And what he's saying, what Paul is saying is something like this. A husband's submission to his wife will look like Christ dying for the church. Laying down his life for her. And... The church's, and the wife's submission to her husband will look like the church's voluntary obedience to Christ as her head. This is what will happen when you're led by the Spirit of God, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So we have this connection again between the quality of our spiritual lives and the outcomes of our relationships. These two things are tied. Of course, we're all familiar with 1 Peter 3, right? Where men are told... that that they better be careful how they treat their wives because the quality of their prayers will be directly impacted by what is going on between them and their wives, right? Treat your wives with honor as the weaker vessel, lest your prayers be hindered. Lest your prayers be hindered. I mean, if you just take it at face value, take God at his word, it would mean something like this. You can't treat your wife like dirt and expect God to listen to you when you pray. You're going to have a problem. Your prayers will not accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish if you are not treating your wife the way you should. There's Matthew 18 verses 1 through 6 and Ephesians 6:4. So Ephesians 6:4 is, "Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath." Right and. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, is in that context of Jesus setting a little child before them and telling them, this is how you have to come to me. You have to come like a little child. He then, immediately after putting this child before them and telling them this is what faith looks like, he then says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be cast into sea than for you to hurt one of these little ones. Right? So, can I just say it this way? Sometimes we could just do with a dose of stepping back and asking ourselves the question, is my approach as a parent encouraging my child to want to serve Jesus, or is it choking the life out of them? Is it choking the life out of them? I mean, some of these just general big, big picture kinds of questions. You know why? Because, listen, if... we should steer our children toward Jesus. But I think a lot of, in a lot of respects, steering our children towards Jesus is not significantly different than at least not discouraging them from following Jesus. In other words, do... Does the way my children see me live my life, does it make them want to serve Jesus? The way they see their dad treat their mom, the way they see their mom treat their dad, the way they see their dad walk, the way their dad speaks to them, talks to them. Do these things make them want to serve Jesus, or does it turn them off to serving Jesus? You see, doing damage to one of these little ones, hurting one of these little ones. I have found myself using this phrase more and more often because I just find it so picturesque. You know, when Jesus is in the garden, he's about to die for the sins of human beings. Peter, one of his well-intentioned disciples, is swinging a sword and cutting off the ear of someone for whom Jesus was about to die my way of picturing this has been, I want to be careful that I don't cut the ears off of people before they have a chance to hear the gospel. Right? Like, sometimes the way I swing just chops their ears off. I'm about to correct them and tell them how to do it right, how, to, how Jesus is going to have... Right? But I've already cut their ear off. They can't hear anything from me. Because I started with a swing. Right? Just... To be alert, to be alert that the way that we do this can either open people's ears or at least not chop their ears off before they've had a chance to hear that Jesus died for them. Right? Let us be, let us be alert to these things. Let us be alert to not exasperating, offending, doing harm to the little children. Now this one, this, one, um, uh, uh, this is the last one and I'm going to move to the last point and move through that one very quickly, but please hear this. I would encourage you to go home and spend a significant amount of time reading James 3, 13 through 18. James 3, 13 through 18 could be summarized like this. If you claim to be living wisely, your relationships will be the things that prove it. If there's envy and strife and bitterness, then I'm going to assure you that you're living from wisdom that comes from below. Because the wisdom that is from above is first and foremost, it's peaceable, right? It's gentle, it's easy to be entreated. It's all of these things. In other words, what James is saying, by the way, the whole book of Galatians would be a support for this idea, but James is saying, please understand that your human relationships. Are putting on display whether or not you're truly living by God's wisdom or whether you're living by a different kind of wisdom. The way James says it is: do not lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't pretend like everything can be falling apart around you, but it's because you're the only one who's living by wisdom. Not likely. Not likely. James calls us to an honest evaluation of our own lives, our own selves, in light of the fruit that we see around us. These two things are intimately connected. So my point would be simply something like this. Our true spiritual condition and our usefulness to God are directly related to our family life and our willingness or desire to improve them. Nobody has it all together. Promise. Promise. Nobody has it all together. Everyone has stuff they go through. Everyone has blown it, done it wrong somewhere along the line. All of us have failed. The point is simply this when we understand that connection, we will respond to our failures in a way that shows that we're committed to this. And we will grow will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Will be open to correction. Those things will happen. The second point that we that we see here from Abraham is what I'll call a vital role, a vital role. God reveals his plans to Abraham based upon what he knows about Abraham as a father. Abraham has a vital role to play in God's plan. He has a vital role to play. Parents, we all have a vital role to play. So, verse 19, let me just throw out a couple things from verse 19, and we're going to close. He says that, uh, verse 19, I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. These two words really fast. Righteousness and justice. What are they? I'm not saying these are perfect. These are my definitions. Okay, Um, You can look them up and study them out yourself. This is one simple way, accurate enough, might not be complete, but one accurate way of describing these two words. Righteousness is this. Righteousness is the sense of ought in the behaviors of intelligent moral beings. He will give them a sense of ought. Now, listen, my brothers and sisters... How many of you still believe that there is a moral ought that is binding upon us as people? We ought to do certain things. Listen, the idea that this world has that you can have morality without a divine law that imposes it on is is a complete falsehood. Well, you can derive morality because it's really better for people to behave morally for the sake of human flourishing. Well, I hate to say this, but that's not the way the animal kingdom works, which is where they get their pattern from. Like the alpha male kills as many of his rivals as he can because because the best thing is for the strongest seed to reproduce. That's fine in the animal kingdom, but it would not be moral for human beings. You see, human morality is a thing that is based on an ought, not on practical outcomes. Not on practical outcomes. Practical outcomes are worth considering sometimes. But you can't get practical outcomes to turn into binding oughts. Oughts are moral imperatives that apply to human beings Because there's a God who's a lawgiver. Because there's a God who created human beings and there is such a thing as right and wrong. For you and I, my brothers and sisters, part of what we are called to do is instill a sense of ought in our children. You ought to do these things. These things should be because you're a moral human being. and and an intelligent moral being who understands God knows this is what ought to be done. It's an important concept in our day, to have an ought that we can pass on to the next generation. Justice refers to moral decision-making that allows us to see clearly, think sanely, and treat others properly as a result. Justice. It's, the idea of justice is discerning. It's understanding. It is making proper decisions. And the idea of justice is this, that there's a moral component to it, that I make moral decisions that allow me to, think clear, to see clearly, to think sanely, and to treat other people properly. I mean, we could be all day here, but you and I are living in a world that no longer sees clearly or thinks sanely while demanding that everybody be treated properly. One of the challenges we're going to have as Christian parents is to pass on a proper sense of justice that says, I want you to to see clearly, I want you to think sanely, while at the same time not letting it poison you so that you treat people arrogantly or mean-spiritedly. My brothers and sisters, you don't have to, knowing truth and treating people nasty don't have to be in uh, in the same person. They don't have to coexist. You can treat people well and think clearly at the same time. I want to tell you what it'll do, though. It'll mean you're going to walk around with a broken heart. That's what it's going to mean. You know why? Because you're going to be loving people that are are self-destroying. That's what it means. You're going to have to be willing to be a weeping prophet. You're going to have to be willing to live with a burden on your heart that that is... I care about these people. I love these people. I'm not angry with these people. I hurt for these people because where they're going is just destroying them. How do I know it's destroying them? Because I can see clearly. Because I'm still sane. I haven't lost my mind. This is the challenge of our day. One of the challenges of our day. It would be a great challenge and an aspiration to say, as parents, we want to pass on righteousness and justice to our children. Oh, I, listen. I, I I have to stop, but I, I'm I'm fighting, I'm fighting, a bad attitude toward people who want to hijack the word justice and use it for their own ends. Justice is a real thing. And God cares about it a lot. He cares about it a lot. But you can't define justice apart from proper moral decision making. You can't. You can't do it. The second thing in verse 19 that I want to close with is what it means to command our children. It says, he will command his children and his household after him. Can I tell you this? That doesn't mean being a, a bossy person. What does it mean to command your children? Well, I'll, I'll say it. It's, it's two parts. One is instruction. One is instruction. Instruction has two parts. One part of instruction is teaching sharing truth and wisdom with our words. Can I just take a, a a second for a quick advertisement for teachable moments? Pick your spots. There are just moments that are the perfect moments to teach certain things to your children. Look for them. Look for them. I will never forget. Brother Matt shared this story years ago. I think I get this right. You are on a hike with your dad. You ran across a dead carcass that was stinking and smelling and your dad paused at that st- and, and stopped and said, you smell that? That's death. That's the, de- that's the decomposition of sin. That's what sin is. That's what it does. It brings death. It's destructive. It's an awful, that was a teachable moment. I was taking something in the moment at hand and saying, this will leave it. And it not only made an impression on Brother Matt, it made an impression on at least one person that he told the story to. It's a beautiful moment. It's a powerful thing to take advantage of those moments. right? A teachable moment. It's, it's instruction, it's teaching with our words. The second thing is, it's giving them opportunities to act out the teaching we're giving. So listen, there's, there's all kinds of fine lines here. Can I ask how many of you ever had the experience of your parents telling you to make up with a brother or sister? How many of you ever had to hug your brother or your sister when you didn't want to? How many ever poked him in the back? <laughs> you know, hug your brother and you're digging your knuckle into his back while I did that, right? Like, yeah, I'm doing this because I have to, but I'm I listen, making them do things you can you can sort through the wisdom all that, but there is something valuable about providing opportunities for your children to practice the things that they're being taught. Like, you take them to the hill. Tell them, we believe in helping people that are less fortunate than ourselves. So we're going to go and we're going to give a day to cleaning up Allison Hill, right? Practice, putting into practice. All right. Can I tell you that the most important thing about commanding your children after you is the example that you set for them. This one is more important than the things that you teach them with your words. It is absolutely true that more is caught than is taught. They will follow the example that you set more than they will follow the words that you teach them. There might be a day when they get old enough to remember something you taught them and step back and evaluate and say, Boy, my dad used to say that to me and he did it lousy. But it was true, so maybe I'd better listen to what he said. But I'm going to tell you this, the thing that's going to come most naturally to them is going to be the, to follow the example that you set, not the things that you say. The example that we set. Our children assimilate so just examples Our children assimilate our poor examples very quickly. Isaac, later on in his life, calls Rebecca his sister. Where do you think he got that from? I think he probably got it from the family stories, right? When dad was in danger, he asked mom to call call herself his sister, right? I, I would be surprised if that's not where it came from. I mean, not everybody thinks to do that on their own, you know. It's not a normal thing. They quickly, easily, naturally assimilate our bad examples. The second one is that they also can learn from our good examples, They can learn what should be. Is it okay for me when I'm when I'm sharing? Is it okay for me to say something good about myself? Is it okay for me to compliment myself? I I I I don't think I do that a lot. Somebody tell me if that's true, because I I feel like I try to use illustrations of my bad examples more often, but one of the things I've heard my daughters say is that they want to find a husband that serves them the way their dad served their mom. I don't know where that came from. I really don't. My dad... And I don't mean to talk that badly about my dad. My my dad's approach was this. My sons should never help clean the house. I don't want them touching a vacuum cleaner. I don't want because that's woman's work, I don't want them to learn to be girly. That's the truth. I think it would be fair to say that that over the past few years I have probably done more dishes than anybody else in my home. Now, I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying this. That sometimes I stand there at the sink and I'm doing dishes and I'm thinking to myself, am I really the only person that can do this? (laughs) I'm not saying I've always done it with a good attitude, but I'm gonna tell you this. If you ever have the opportunity to hear a daughter say, I hope to find a man that treats me like that, you will step back and say, that was worth every dish I ever did. Amen? Amen. It was worth every dish I ever did. You know why? Because may God be gracious to give my daughters husbands that actually treat them nicely. That are generous to them and take care of them. And I don't think that's a bad expectation for them to have. Amen? May God raise up some spouses for our children. Last thing is this, we have to face the fact that the quality and the health of our relationships is vital to the impact of our examples. If you want to be an example to your children, you'd better remember that they're watching the way you treat your wife, they're watching the way you treat your husband, they're watching. The quality of your ability, your ability to impact their lives for Jesus, your example, is going to be seriously impacted by the quality of your relationships. Very seriously so. So can I tell you this? How many of you are feeling rather like a failure? (laughs) Can I tell you that humility and confession and repentance and forgiveness are a big part of that? It's okay to fail. Because it will give you an opportunity to teach them how to repent they will see that and they will remember that. It's not that the best parent is not necessarily, the most most successful parent is not necessarily the best parent. I've made more mistakes than many others have. But I will tell you this, I know how to say I'm sorry. I've repented. I can honestly say my children have seen their dad weep. I'm talking good about myself again, what's happening this morning. (laughs) I'm just saying it's important, men, ladies, it's important when we don't get it right to know how to say we're sorry, to know how to repent, to know how to acknowledge that. That's a vital, important part of teaching our children to follow Jesus because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So my challenge to you is that your role is vital and your relationships are a very important telltale sign of how your spiritual life is doing. If it's not going well, there should be in you a deep hunger, a deep conviction that it needs to improve. And it should drive you to seek out how to make that happen. All right. I want to close just asking for the uh, parents that are dedicating their children to the Lord to to come up front here. Um, That would be the Casions and the Lalones. I think that's everyone that told me, but if there's someone else that is...